Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When you hot dip metal in zinc to give it a protective coating, that's called galvanizing. But in the Civil War, the term also referred to Confederate prisoners of war who signed loyalty oaths and joined the Federal Army. Wright Stephen Batchelor of Nash County, for example, in North Carolina, was one such galvanized soldier. Informally, we use the term galvanized to mean spur into action. And that's what happened to the great-grandson of Wright Stephen Batchelor when he learned of his connection to the Civil War and decided he had to know more about it. We'll talk with him, Michael K. Brantley, author of Galvanized, The Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road, not occupying the Brewster Building this evening because it's quiet here at home. Uh, Mrs. Civil War Talk Radio, Emily, is off uh, taking students on a field trip to Charleston, South Carolina, so I can uh, freely open the doors and fill the house with my my chatter uh, without disturbing anyone in the next room. But even as I do so, I'm still not representing her or East Carolina University, where I work, or anybody else, and my guest likewise represents only himself, as always, on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, over this past week, um, some interesting football took place, as it always does here in the fall. I was, in past years, I would be accustomed to watching East Carolina Pirates get thumped by their opponents and then say, well, at least my alma mater, Michigan, will win this weekend. Uh, last weekend, it was the other way around. We're not going to talk about the Big Ten, but ECU uh, laid a beating on South Florida quite effectively. They're fired up now for the next game. The last two games they played have been in downpours. I sat through the one last Thursday here in Greenville 
um, was a loyal fan, got, got soaking wet, but enjoyed watching the team win. We're hoping that this Saturday we'll get some dry weather to, uh, to play our next opponent. And speaking of ECU sports, congratulations to the women's soccer team. Just finished a very good season during which they, they beat a top 25 team. They made this conference tournament once again. Uh, have some very good young players coming up. I went to one of their last games in the season and ran into some of my old teammates from Greenville Stars adult soccer uh, days. One of them has a daughter who plays on the Pirates team. She's the, the outstanding goaltender. And another one uh, I was sitting with has a granddaughter who is playing U8 Greenville Stars soccer. The same level that my youngest daughter was playing at when, when we moved to Greenville many years ago. And and dang, that's a long time. Now the grandkids, the next generation is playing. I, I left the stadium feeling old that day. Uh, I felt a little less old uh, today, however, working on getting the sound for this show up to where it ought to be by doing some replacement of equipment around the house. This is coming to you courtesy of a new modem, uh, replacing the one that that the, uh, the, the cable company gives you. Went out and bought my own, installed it, and got it activated without a hitch, amazingly. I, I know I'm asking for trouble when I say that. And tomorrow, a new router that I ordered should arrive. I will try to install that. And uh, there are cords everywhere across the room. This is only happening because Emily is away if she were here. This multi-day project of, of cords and equipment and furniture everywhere would not be tolerated, and nor should it be. Uh, but hopefully, the sound quality will continue to stay strong. You'll get to Hear what I have to say uh, both tonight and in weeks coming up. Next week, for example, we will find out from Brad Asher about the most hated man in Kentucky. Who was that? We'll, we'll make that a cliffhanger. Come back on November 10th and find out who he was. On November 17th, Charlie Knight returns to the show with his uh, epic reference work from Arlington to Appomattox, Robert E. Lee's Civil War, Day by Day. We won't have a show on Thanksgiving week. Enjoy it with your families. But we'll finish up two shows for the fall season on December 1. Uh, Carrie Janey comes back to the show. It might be her third trip now, uh, but always welcome. With a new book called Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. We'll hear a little bit about what some people did after Appomattox tonight. And we'll finish up the season with Deborah Willis and her uh the award-winning work, The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. And then we'll take uh, a well-deserved winter break. You can relax and not hear me from me for a while. Uh, and we'll come back in January with a bunch of new shows. You can always find out what's happening on the show from www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things up to date. You can buy books through there. You can donate to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund by clicking on the PayPal link. Your donations are always welcome. Some people say, why don't you have a Patreon for this uh, for this podcast? And I say, well, we've got the PayPal thing, and I looked into Patreon, and it's about the same thing. They both take a little bit off the top from every donation. They are providing a service after all. 
and uh, otherwise hard to see what the, the difference would be. So if you do feel moved to donate, if you look at, say, a submarine sandwich in one hand and consider four shows of Civil War talk radio on the other and think for $5 a month I could I could be a good guy, uh, go ahead and, and uh, make a recurring donation. But don't deduct it on your taxes. It's not tax deductible. I'm not a charity. I have make no promise as to what will be done with the money, as always. Uh, I mentioned my wife is leading a group of students down to Charleston this week. Uh, she texted me today. They were at a museum. One of the people giving a presentation there was an East Carolina University alumnus. And this past summer, when I was leading a group up at Appomattox Courthouse, we had a, an ECU alum who is now a National Park Service ranger give an excellent presentation. Uh, this week, I got an email from a, a, one of our graduates who just got promoted to become executive director of a museum she's working in. I'm just really proud of all the good things that our students accomplish in the world of, of public history and teaching. And that brings us to today's guest, Michael Brantley, author of Galvanized, the Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate. Uh, Michael, are you there? I am, and I'm glad to be here. Well, welcome to the show. I'm talking about my pride in ECU alums, and I'm not talking about you. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm talking about Christy, uh, your <laughs> wife, uh, who was one of my graduate students, uh, and, and did an outstanding job. How is Christy doing? Well, she's doing great. You made a good choice focusing on her instead of me. Uh, she's working <laughs> She's working in the Department of uh, Cultural Resources uh, for the state of North Carolina and Historic Preservation, so she's loving it. Well, that, that's wonderful to hear. I'm always <laughs> glad uh, every such story is, is another uh, piece of ammunition when we talk to administrators who say, well, history degree, what are they going to do with that? Um, there are plenty of things one can do, and, and uh, Christie's showing that. I thought of her this morning, actually. I was preparing for this show, and the landscapers were right outside the window uh, with their, their loud equipment, and I got up and moved to the other room, but it reminded me when she did her defense in Brewster, uh, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the political science department's conference room on the first floor. And just as she starts talking, the leaf blower guy starts right outside the window. Uh, it was shaking the room and she was so professional about it. She was such a trooper. She just carried on, worked her way through it. Um, but I, I will always remember that, uh, that particular defense for that moment. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it's one of the things you can't plan on, but they happen. So while we're talking ECU and, and your book, uh, which I enjoyed very much, well, you, you mentioned in, in the introduction uh, some of the people who read your book in advance, Philip Gerard, a fine writer, he's been on the show, and you mentioned Wade Dudley, uh, late uh, history professor from East Carolina and a good friend. Uh, I, I I'm sure you know Wade is no longer with us. Uh, did he get to read this book? Uh, did it come out before his untimely death? Just before. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not positive. I know um, we went to visit him uh, when he was cleaning out his office. He told us to come get – he had some books for us. 
Right. And so uh, we came and, and we told him we'd uh, take him and Sue out for dinner to celebrate all this because it, it was a crazy day when he was trying to get out of there. And, uh, he, and he passed away not long after that. I sure I sure do miss him. I know a lot of people do. And he was a he was a good guy and very very good to both of us for sure. He he was was a, a he was a great teacher and remembered fondly by yes. everyone at ECU. Uh, well, let's talk about this book. Um, the normally when I read a book for this show, I will often be able to skim through some chapters if if not because it's not a good book, but if they're writing about you know the Battle of Antietam, I sort of know a lot of what happened there. I can kind of skim through what's going on. Or if they're talking about, uh, you know, the, the blockade, I, I've read about the blockade. This book is, doesn't fall into that category. What would be your elevator pitch? How, how did you explain this book in three minutes to, uh, to a publisher? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question because it had such an evolution to the, uh, to how it came about, which I can talk about in a minute, but I, I guess my pitch would be, uh, North Carolina was different in the Civil War than any other state, and uh, this man that I've stumbled across and found out I was related to, I didn't know it when I started, uh, he was the perfect metaphor uh, for what North Carolina was. Wasn't sure exactly which way he wanted to go sometimes and had to make a lot of decisions and uh, ended up, uh, I guess you would say, being a survivor, uh, at least to a point. Well, that that is uh, that is a really good description, certainly uh uh, gives us a, a sense of what's going on here. So maybe we'll start at the beginning. Uh, this is uh, Wright Stephen Batchelor. Do I have that correct? That's correct. That's he. He is. Uh, spoiler alert for people who don't want the surprise. Uh, he uh, is your great great grandfather. That's right. And and I didn't know that when I started. I, I know that sounds strange. And I was going to say his name sounds like it's out of order. I can't tell you how many times I would be researching something and somebody would think I'd transpose the, the first two names if I was putting in a request. Right. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I didn't know I was related to him. I was actually working on my first book. Um, and it was it was a memoir about growing up in eastern North Carolina. And I felt like um you know, family is so important in the South, roots are so important. And I was going to try to do something about, uh, you know, relatives, ancestors, and of course, you know, looking to the Civil War. And so I was looking for family names in a great bookstore. And, and probably many of your listeners are familiar with Broadfoot uh, mm-hmm. Publishing, which has a store in Wendell. And then I think they um, they have another place in Wilmington. I, I haven't been to that one. And so so I ran across his name, and most of the time in these Civil War rosters and books, when you find a private, there's usually not a whole lot, you know, uh, where they served, if, if they were wounded, maybe that's in there. Uh, but for a private, he had a he had a pretty solid paragraph, and it included that he had escaped, captured, he had been captured and escaped at Gettysburg, and then was captured again. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I made a note of it, thinking, I, you know, I'll come back and, and look into this guy. And I didn't realize uh, the rock I was kicking over when I started that, <laughs> uh, because every time I would find something, it really wasn't an answer. It would just raise more questions. Um, and and so it ended up being something I couldn't finish in time for that first project. So I, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I'm trying to stick in a quick <clears throat> word about uh, Broadfoot Publishing that you mentioned. And again, I'm sure many listeners are familiar 
uh, many of you have read books published by by Broadfoot. That they they have the retail store, and I, I've been to it. It it is in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, it's basically in a house. You have to. It's not like a store in a commercial district. Uh, but is is it possible to explain this to, to someone just how how cool that place is? <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, you're not going to stumble across it. You have to be looking for it. Mm-hmm. And as many times as I've been, and the way I found out about it um, was just another Civil War buff was, you know, made the same comment. He said, I assume you've heard of this place, and I had not. Mm-hmm. And the way I describe it to people is it's a house that's like a stacks in a library. And uh, you just kind of get lost in the stacks really easy there. But there's so many things you just don't see anywhere else. And I love it. And then Tom, the owner, is uh, such a great guy about helping you find – even if he doesn't have it, he'll help you find something. And he, he was a great help on this. Yeah, I, I can recall getting uh, catalogs from from him decades ago now uh, and, and knowing about this place that published uh, – you know, did reprints of, of works from the era and then it collected these old books and sold them. So – uh, this is an, an unpaid commercial, listeners. If you're in <laughs> Eastern North Carolina, make your way to Broadfoot Publishing. You won't be sorry. Um, and it is a great resource, as you point out, uh, for for historians as well. So you are starting to look for the history of this ancestor. You you know his his military record or a little bit of it. Um, but what was the next link in the chain? So I, I had to put it off for just a little bit and come back to it. But the next step was going to old newspapers and uh, trying to see what I could find about where he served and also looking at the uh, regimental history. So I started in, in those two books. So the, the regimental history and then the, um, the other books that, that had all the roster, I guess you would say, Civil War rosters. And that, that's the 47th North Carolina we're talking yeah, about? That's right. Okay. Company, company so- A. What we'll do now is take a short break. We'll come back, talk more about the uh, uh, lengthy and winding history of Wright Stephen Batchelor, 47th North Carolina. We're talking with Batchelor's great-great-grandson, Michael K. Brantley, who is the author of Galvanized, the Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Variety Channel. 
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Michael K. Brantley, who's the author of Galvanized, The Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate, uh, that Confederate is uh, Wright Stephen Batchelor, great-great-grandfather of our guest tonight and author of the book. Uh, he served in the 47th North Carolina. We, we know that. One of the things I really like about this, this book, Michael, is the way it interweaves uh, Batchelor's story with the story of your quest to find out about him. It shows how, how history gets done uh, and one of the things you do is set the table by showing the world that Bachelor came from. Uh, can you talk about that? What was North Carolina like in in the eighteen forties, fifties? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I, I would like, and that was the thing. I can't take complete credit for that idea. I did have uh, somebody suggest to me that that new. Uh, I mentioned earlier kicking rocks over. Mentioned that every time I would find something, I'd have to go look for two more, three more things. They said that should be part of your story, you know, be mm-hmm. in there. So that there's really, you know, there's that thread of chasing this. And then, you know, there's some things about the flags and things about the uh, statues. But also, um, you know, I mean, I love history and I've loved it all my life. I, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of books. We had the world book. And so, I, I, you know, I would make notes out of those. I know it sounds pretty nerdy. I would make notes <laughs> out of those when I was a kid for fun. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, when you start digging into North Carolina, it really was so different. Like, um, and, and I think that's one of those things maybe we don't get in our soundbite world now that depending on your source, um, the highest number I found for percentage of slave owners was about 28 um, percent. And so, you know, a fairly small percentage of people and, and of that percentage, a smaller percentage owned most of the slaves, like in my county, which is which is Nash County. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found records there were more free blacks than slaves in my county, and, and and that's not necessarily uncommon. And I sort of thought that's just – I don't think people realize some of these things I, I kept running into when I was trying to tell North Carolina's story. Uh, I mean, that, that's a good point that slave ownership was very concentrated at the top of the pyramid. Uh, that, that, as you say, a quarter of white southern families might own slaves, but within that – most of them, most who did own slaves, only owned one or you know fewer than five, and then a few owned hundreds, if not thousands. Uh, so, so, so it is very concentrated, as you point out. Not the average white farmer does not own uh, another human being. 
Right. And, and you know, these uh, these small farmers, th- these are not the guys that you see in the movies that ran out and, and joined the army, you know, the day after Fort Sumter. Uh, they, they were pretty they were pretty reluctant. I mean, uh, right, Stephen, he waited around just almost a year. And I really think the reason a lot of and, and again, I'm not an apologist, but a, a lot of it was you know, it's like I was sometimes tell students, I said, an army has landed at the beach and they're heading for Raleigh. And your farm is between that army and Raleigh. You know, what do farms do? What do uh, armies do in the 19th century when they're on the move? They burn stuff and destroy stuff and shoot people. And so, you know, there, there's your choice. Uh, it might not be as political as you think. It might be self-preservation. No, I think there, definitely no question that there's uh, a range of, of, of motives involved. And um, so, we, we, you know, we were we were talking about, um, you know, his story. So he signed up and his brother and they went to Raleigh. And I don't know, you just find all these little interesting stories. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, for example, uh, and some things you just sort of have to put together. And that, that was I say fun now. It wasn't always fun at the time. <laughs> um, uh. for, for example, you know, the census says he couldn't read uh, before the war. I believe that was the 1860 census still had him as illiterate. And then 18, 1870 has him as illiterate. And then you piece together that his captain was John Thorpe, who, who ended up being a pretty leading citizen of Rocky Mount after the war. And he was a school teacher. And then you read, you dig into Thorpe a little bit and find out that he passed up several promotions during the war because he didn't want to leave the men. And then you find little anecdotes here and there about him trying to help people he served with. And you, you kind of put together that he probably taught a lot of these guys to read, you know, these adults. So like Stephen was, was in his 30s, um, but he was, you know, willing to learn to read and some of these other guys. And uh, so, you know, you might not have the absolute, but you that was part of the puzzle was was putting little things like that together. Well, another clue about that, you point out that, that, that he was the overseer or superintendent of the, the county poorhouse. So he had to have some kind of administrative responsibility. Uh, I, I guess you could do that without reading, but it seems like that'd be a big advantage. Yeah, and, and he did it uh, a little bit before the war, but not like after. Like once the war was over, mm-hmm. that, that job sort of rotated before the war. And then I think after the war, it was, I don't know if you want to say season and opportunity, but you know, unemployment was a real possibility and, and you know, mm-hmm. just surviving. And he had a chance to, you know, now he can read and now he can do more things. Um, he's certainly learned a lot about survival from what he went through in the war. And so he pretty much held that poorhouse post um, about two decades after the war, where it was a job that kind of nobody wanted before the war. They would, somebody would take it for a year and then give it up and then maybe take it again. So what was the poorhouse? Uh, can you describe what, what, what went on there? Yeah, uh, thankfully, uh, somebody had put together uh, – and retrieved uh, some of the minutes and transcribed them. They didn't have them all, but sort of a history of the, uh, you can find a history of the poor house through the minutes. Um, but basically uh, they later, a lot of them later became county homes and people may be more familiar with that term, but, but you had to be either somebody that was physically or mentally incapable of uh, living on your own to be able to get in there. And then once you got in, you had to be able to work. You couldn't, you, you didn't go sit in a room and have your meals brought to you. You had to work. It was a, basically a work farm uh, for people that didn't have anywhere else to go and were not capable of doing anything else independently. So, so there's some limited social wear, welfare here, but uh, uh, not a great deal, certainly. 
Now, during the war, uh, you said it, that, that initially uh, Bachelor was reluctant to join, but he does join in, in the second year, which may you suggest may have had something to do with the, the threat of being drafted. Yeah, I, I do think that was uh, part of it, so that they could stay together. Um, and, and his brother was in the unit with him for a while, and they trained in Raleigh, and then they kind of sent them all over the place. And this is where you get, I guess, for lack of a better word, some dark humor. Uh, they would, as they were finishing up the training, they would grab these guys and put them on a train and send them somewhere. And they didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, so like they sent them down around Newburn and they sent them one time without any rifles. And mm -hmm. so I, I don't know exactly what they were planning on them doing when they got there. <laughs> Uh, and then another time they sent them, and it was unseasonable uh, snow came, and they got off the train, and they told them to leave their packs. They had to do a, a double-quick march, leave your packs. You can get them on the way back when you go back to Raleigh. So as as you probably know where this is going, if you uh, have studied military history any, they went and chased uh, they went and chased that squirrel, and then when they came back, all their stuff was gone. Uh, so they had several little episodes like that, and it's, I guess it gives a little sad comic relief but it, you can just imagine you 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 know what you're planning on eating or living off of or wrapping up in the snow and you come back and uh somebody's thrown it on a train and send it to somebody else well so initially the 47th serves in north carolina doesn't doesn't see a lot of action but they make up for that in 1863 yes um so they uh they really their first real action was Gettysburg and so um, you know what a what a disastrous way to to get your feet into it and and, they, and it's just interesting you read their words not so much the histories but the letters they wrote um, or that I mentioned earlier did a fantastic job 30 years later writing all this stuff down with, with amazing accuracy but basically on the first day uh, they sort of ran into the Union accidentally and had a couple of skirmishes and then the skirmishes uh, developed into more, and they took such heavy casualties, they held them out on the second day. So they didn't see any action on the second day. Okay. And then in the third day, um, they were involved in Pickett's Charge, which which was is a whole another topic about uh, running into stories about how it should have been called Pettigrew's Charge. Uh, but that's that, that was what happened to them on the third day. Not very many people uh, made it through that without being hurt they they got the company a the, the squad that he was in got pinned down and ended up getting captured but in the chaos they were several of them were able to escape so he kind of got away the first time he got captured and so, so he made, he, they say they made it all the way up to cemetery ridge and and that's where they yes. got captured right at the tip of the the, the charge so it, it, he's in Pettigrew's brigade but as you say the charge gets known as pickett's charge um this wasn't something the men let go of easily. There's this conflict about who, who, who made the charge and who went the farthest and who should get the name and so on. Yeah, it was really interesting seeing how the um, Virginia and North Carolina papers sort of had their own little war about who gets the blame and who gets the credit, mm -hmm. who gets the name on it. And uh, I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you'd ever say it's technically been settled, but uh, Pedigree was was also very interesting. I, you know, I knew of him but didn't know much about him. Uh, but anyway, after after they got back, um, you know, they're in retreat. Uh, yes. I guess I guess you would say it was a blessing that they were able to leave with some rain that probably uh, helped keep them out of being captured. But then they got to Bristow Station, uh, which was another disaster. And kind of the same thing happened. They were in the same sort of situation where they got trapped, the guys he was with. And this time when he got captured, he didn't get away. 
And so they sent him to Old Capitol Prison, him and the guys they captured with him. And then shortly after that, uh, they sent him to Point Lookout, which is which is a pretty awful place. Let's talk about that. Where is Point Lookout and what was it like? So if you can think of sort of that southern tip of Maryland, mm-hmm. um, you know, we might think of it as beachfront property now, but it was pretty nasty. <laughs> it was it was below sea level. They didn't, uh, the union, you know, had heard all these horror stories about southern prison camps. I think maybe they thought they would try to match that. Uh, they wouldn't provide them housing. They gave them tents. Uh, they didn't have adequate clothes or blankets. And so these guys were dying right and left. Um, I found lots of stories about how sometimes guards would go out at night and pull them out of their tents and make them run laps up and down the streets, uh, tent streets. Uh, there were stories about uh, guards shooting into tents if they heard talking. That was forbidden after dark, and so they would sometimes shoot into a tent. And so there, there was a lot of people dying every day. So this was where where Bachelor decides to to uh, throw his hand in as far as being a Confederate. Right. So they give them the option. Uh, you know, they they would interrogate these guys, and they found out that um, you know they're not as as hardcore as as maybe we tend to, again, maybe watch movies. We think they were all enthusiastic, hardcore. So they were given the chance that if they would join the Union Army or Navy, uh, they could get out of the prison camp. And so him and a couple of other guys, uh, they took that offer. And so they, they had them training right outside of the prison camp. And that's kind of where that galvanized thing comes in, is that was, they were, of course, made fun of, whitewashed ribs, galvanized ribs. And that, so they would sort of be taunted by the guys in the prison camp who could see them training. And uh, it's kind of interesting. They started out, I think they sent, I believe it was uh, sort of Tidewater region. They sent them and then Grant decided maybe it wasn't such a great idea to send Confederates back to the South. I was surprised by that, that, that these guys were sent down toward Elizabeth city, North Carolina mm-hmm. initially, because yeah, you're going to run into your old neighbors. Uh, that, that's just not a, not a smart thing to do. Well, and, you know, there's kind of a couple of ways to think about that. You know, not only is that chance of them taking off and running or, you know, turning on their uh, union counterparts, but also, you know, if, if they get captured, uh, you know, oh, there's a pretty yeah. wide range of what you could get for a deserter. I mean, you, you might just be told to go get back in line or they might brand you or they might shoot you uh, just depending on, you know, what the flavor is that week. So well, I mean, you risk. mentioned that, that George Pickett executes, what was it, 22 deserters at Kinston? Yes, the, and the uh, mass hanging there. Yeah, so so that that's a real risk, right? And yeah. so anyway, the, they decide that's not a great idea. So they they put all of the they put them all on a train and they send them to the to the Midwest, which they I guess they would have called the West really then. But mm-hmm. um, they sent some to St. Louis and then some to Milwaukee area, which is where Wright Stephen went. And so um, I, I, they were going to go out there and defend the frontier uh, with the Indians. Uh, he wasn't very enthusiastic about that either. So he stayed out there long enough to draw a paycheck, and uh, they got paid, and then he decided to take a really long walk back towards uh, eastern North Carolina. Now that part, I just I had to do a double take. So he walked from Milwaukee back to Virginia. Right, and that's, that's one of those things where you kind of have to put pieces together. So, you know, one thing I looked at was could he have taken a blockade runner but everybody I interviewed for that and everything I looked up, he would have had to walk pretty far into Canada and nowhere to go and then had to get through the blockade. And so it's, it's 
for everything I could put together. And then also in the copy editing stage, I had a historian that, that, that worked with the state that knew I was working on this mm-hmm. and actually had the names of the people that deserted with him. And so that was kind of a nice little thing there at the end. And that's one of those things where the research could go forever. I mean, I could still be researching this. That was something right. I found, you know, at the 11th hour. But it was kind of nice. And uh, what's also interesting is at the end, like when he left, all those people he left with, they all disappear from history. Like there's no record of anybody else he walked off with. He's the only person there's, there's any record of. And so I always wonder, you know, what happened? Did they just disappear back into the woodwork did they make it back home uh did somebody find them and and take care of the you know take care of it because uh, you know right Stephen, what he would have been a double deserter at this point you know confederate army considered him a deserter union army considered him a deserter uh so pretty pretty treacherous trip back yeah and and he he does make it back uh as you point out he gets back to uh to petersburg virginia finds his old regiment uh by this time uh, of course, it's 1864, or actually early 1865, and uh, I, I would take issue with one line in your book where you said the, everybody knew the war was winding down. I'm not sure they did. I'm not sure that they didn't still hold out some hope that this was their Valley Forge, and they were going to turn it around somehow miraculously the way George Washington did. But they certainly knew they were in dire straits one way or another. And yet he shows up just in time to get back in line with the old regiment. And, yeah. and actually, let's let's take, let's take a break there. Let's okay. stop here uh, and and pick up the story with the, the his post-war world. Uh, this is the fascinating story of of Wright Stephen Batchelor, uh, the great great grandfather of Michael K. Brantley, who's the author of Galvanized. Excuse me, Galvanized, The Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate. That's the book we're discussing tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P 
O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Michael K. Brantley, author of Galvanized, the Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate. So, Michael, you said right at the top of the show that you did not know that uh, that Bright Stephen Batchelor was your uh, great-grandfather. You said he was not talked about in your family. He was not part of the family lore. This is not something you learned about as a child. Yeah, and that was really interesting, and I guess also disappointing uh, because, like I, you know, I had mentioned uh, some of the nerdy things I did. You know, I read as much as I could about history, and um, and and one of the things I found was I had a great uncle that had passed this story that had been passed to him and had been passed to to his parents, which is what I lead the book off with, which is a story of Wright Stephen the day he returned to Nash County, the day he walked back in his yard, and um, you know, his kids, his youngest kids really weren't sure who he was and and his wife sort of had to take a double take because he was kind of a skeleton you know he was a skeleton and uh you know he was he had so much uh lice and filth that instead of going in the house or hugging his wife that he hadn't seen in in years they burned his clothes in the yard and uh made him a bath and so i never heard about him um so I, i don't know if that's got something to do with the fact that he was in the Union Army or the fact of, of some of the things that, um, you know, after the war, you'll uh, not to give too many spoilers away, but after the war, he was a radical Republican, which was a, a little unusual for for where he was an advocate for uh, freed men's rights. And so I don't know what combination of those things that might have made for it, I, you know, other than uh, that side of my family's probably not into history like I am. And it just might not have been a thought. Uh, you know, the, the folks that would have told me that story, I think they're the things they thought about, they were still thinking about getting through the depression. And so mm-hmm. it just might have been, you know, just wasn't things maybe they thought about, like I had the luxury maybe of thinking about as, as being a younger man. So this story was not part of your, your upbringing. And you also talk in the book about how even the Civil War didn't get talked about in, in the schools you went to in North Carolina. Yeah, it, it was a little frustrating. You would think that was a thing, uh, but it always seemed it always seemed like every year, whether it was uh, social studies or history, we'd spend a lot of time on on ancient history, and then we would either stop before we got to the Civil War or sort of breeze through it with a well, not much happened here in North Carolina, and uh, you know I, I don't know if that was uh, you know because the South lost. I don't. I've joked about that before that we don't talk about losses, uh, but I don't know. It was it was. Fascinating because what you know the things that I got and there was other people that I knew that were interested. We we sort of had to get that on our own. So you you had to pursue this independently, and and you find out uh, as you said a moment ago when when he comes back uh, after after that dramatic encounter with his family, and and gets cleaned up a little bit, he then politically uh, becomes a Republican, which is not the ordinary thing to do in, in post-war North Carolina. There are some. You talk about Governor Holden uh, leading uh, an attempt to, to eliminate the Ku Klux Klan in, in the state. Uh, not entirely successful. But what, what do you think brought uh, Batchelor to, to take that path? Well, you could see things before the war that he was ambitious. He was always working, uh, trying to improve his lot, 
uh, you know, he took that uh, he took that poorhouse job, I think, as a, as a way to sort of advance himself. Uh, he was working his farm. He worked his uh, mother-in-law's property, and he was trying to add. Always, it always seemed like he was trying to add or step up. If you kind of read through the census and through the things he was doing, and so I think when he came back, I think he felt like uh, you know he learned the read. Uh, he'd seen some stuff, you know, he had, he had lived through some things that he didn't talk about or write about. I mean, he didn't leave any record. It's kind of frustrating because I would have loved to known because there was a point on that walk back where he could have gone home or he could have gone to Petersburg. Um, and he made and, you know, he made that choice to go back to Petersburg. Um, and I think it was interesting that he could have gone home. But of course, you know, he knew he had to live with those people. And I think that was part of the problem later is I think his politics, the fact he had worn that blue uniform, I think there was some resentment uh, with his neighbors. I, I think uh, he was well regarded if you read things that were said about him after he passed away, but th- there was definitely some issues. People had issues with him getting out of prison by joining the Union Army. There's not a doubt about that. Then one of the other things that comes up, and I guess this is another spoiler alert, you, you sort of toss off early in the book uh, you're finding all these new things you didn't know about this relative of yours, including a murder case. And uh, as I'm reading the book, I'm turning the pages. You know, so th- did he murder someone? You know, what happened? What? What? I, I got to get to the end of this. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, listeners, I if you want to save it, uh, go ahead and stop listening now. Go buy the book and read it. Otherwise, uh, how was- do you find out what happened? Well, I always struggle um, when I talk to groups about whether to give this part away or not, but it's it's fascinating. <laughs> um, so he, he worked at the poor house for about 20 years, and without getting into too many of the details, he had a he had a neighbor whose dad had served uh, not in the same unit, but was in the prison camp at the same time. And so they, they knew each other, um, but they had an issue with a dog, and the dog was killing chickens at the poor house. And so, as people did in those days, uh, Wright Stephen dispatched that dog one night when he broke into the chicken house. And a couple of days later, this hot-headed teenager was waiting for him when he came out of the courthouse, uh, which is not the current courthouse in Nashville. It's just down the it would, the site would have been just down the street, sort of in the same area. And so, in the middle of the day, uh, Wright Stephen comes out of the courthouse after conducting some poorhouse business, and this teenager steps out from around the corner of the building. Uh, says something to write Stephen and shoots him in the neck, tried to shoot him in the head, hit him in the neck and uh, wow. in front of witnesses, plenty of witnesses. And uh, so he dies right there on the, on the courthouse steps. So after all he had been through Pickett's charge uh, and walking all the way back from Wisconsin, some young punk uh, with a gun ends his life. And, and that's also kind of a, a mystery as well, because uh, I saw in several places that he he would he, he himself would have been armed. He was usually armed. Most of these guys, when they traveled far from home, they took a weapon with them. So I don't know if he lightly regarded this guy or it just happened so fast. Uh, the witness accounts aren't very um, specific. It's kind of a general accounting. And then the court records, which was which was an entirely other chase to try to find those Um I had to go to Raleigh to find, they supposedly didn't exist, and then there were some handwritten things in Raleigh. Uh, n- definitely not testimony like we would expect to see now for a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you find out what happened. A lynch mob came for the assassin, and so they had to move the trial to Wilson. And that, that also kind of got interesting. We think fake news is a new thing. Um, but, when I, but when I was going through newspapers, I had um, s- several accounts where they've copied each other and 
Uh, they have the person who was murdered as the assailant and the person who was the assailant as the person murdered. So there were lots of inaccuracies. Um, three different newspapers reported the trial in three different locations. So trying to nail down where it actually took place was, was sort of challenging. Um, but, but you know, it made it interesting. And then the, there wasn't much to the case. Uh, came back with a, a verdict of not first-degree murder, although it seems like it's pretty clear-cut. And so yeah. the, the murderer served about five years before he got out. Wow. The uh, your description of going into the, the courthouse, the modern courthouse, say, you know, I need some help looking up in a rest record. Yeah, we can help you. Uh, here's the here's the name and, and you have a date, yeah, it's December something eighteen eighty six. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a uh, fun moment. Uh, the clerk didn't think it was as funny as I did, but No, uh, but uh, when historians are on the prowl, you have to you gotta look for where things are. So um so the assailant gets away. You you end the book talking about um, your your views on the way the Civil War is remembered today, the the controversies over flags and statues, um, and uh, I want to save much of that for the reader to look at. But as a historian, I'm curious to ask you about your experience, I guess journey of discovery that. Uh, uh, you know, seeing the sausage made. Where where does history come from? We, when you're, we're growing up, we read a book. It's in a book. It must be true. Uh, and of course, as you point out with fake news, people, you know, see it's on the internet. It must be true. It's on TV. It must be true. Uh, if it if it's what they want to believe, they they believe it. But again and again, you had the experience of wait. There's this is much more complicated. Yeah, and, and I think uh, that, that's probably what I came away with the most. Uh, I did, you, you know, growing up, it was everything was pretty straightforward, black and white in the history books and, and most of the things I read. Um, but then when I got to college, I had a professor uh, in history that uh, taught the Civil War class, a Civil War history class that I took. And I mean, he told that thing like it was. He didn't sugarcoat anything. Uh, he was kind of disgusted with with both sides, the politicians and the and the generals, and I never had it laid out that way. And I think he made me think in a different way that you, you've got to look a little closer. You know, this like I, I mentioned earlier, you know, it it bothers me a little the generalizations I hear on TV and the assumptions about the Civil War that if you go back and look at the words that the people wrote and the words they said, especially the, I hate to say common people, but the average people, the things they were saying and writing, it's much more informative to me than uh, reading about just the famous people. Um, you know, the ones we know as figures and in history. Well, absolutely. I think the, uh, I have my, my students in a military history class in teaching right now, their current assignment is to find a, a primary source book from the Civil War, uh, looking for memoirs or letters, and published books uh, of memoirs or letters or diaries, and mostly from ordinary participants, uh, getting a lot of ones who are from nurses, others from soldiers, uh, and others from, from civilians as well. There's more and more of that being published, but I, I think you're absolutely onto something that this is an era, a section of the war that uh, that traditionally was not not covered in great detail, and uh, we're certainly seeing more and more of that uh, in the present. So, uh, do you have another project in mind? You you mentioned this is you wrote a book on your own background in Eastern North Carolina. 
now you've tracked down this uh, mysterious and fascinating ancestor. Uh, where do you go next? Um, well, I, I just had a, um, I've written a newspaper column um, for about 25 years. And so we just had a book of columns come out. That, that's sort of a small project. But the next sort of uh, research thing I'm working on is uh, from the War of 1812. And, and that's kind of where Wade Dudley came in and uh, was, was very good, maybe pointing me in the right direction. But it's, uh, it's another North Carolina figure. I don't want to say too much because I'm still kind of early in it, uh, but he was uh, he was quite an adventurer. He was a privateer and a legislator, um, and just a really interesting character. I think what attracted me to him is he once uh, got mad and grabbed a lawyer and threw him in the News River. I think that's <laughs> the uh, the thing that sort of got me hooked. Maybe I should look more into this guy. Excellent. Well, that will be interesting to read about. So the. Um uh, one thing I often ask guests on the show is the, uh, the Civil War time machine. If you could go back to the Civil War era and spend 30 minutes there and come back safely, uh, who would you like to talk to? And, and for, in your case, I'll say with the exception of your great-great-grandfather, because that would be the obvious choice. Um, who else did you come across who you'd really want to spend 30 minutes with? Um, I think the captain of that regiment, uh, John Thorpe, a book could be done on him. He had a fascinating life after the war. His take uh, on things like newspaper stories written about him 30 and 40 years, his his comments about the war are things you don't see people saying that time. You see people saying now. Like one of the things, a story I found about him was um, he said the Civil War would have happened whether it was about slavery or not, that there was other issues uh, that would have pressed a war at some point. And just interesting things. He, he just seems fascinating. I think Pettigrew would have been very interesting to talk to. Such a young guy. You look at photographs of him and you don't think that, but he was really, really young, the things he had already done. I think he would have been pretty fascinating. But definitely those two. And I think just the ordinary people, the neighbors. If I couldn't talk to Wright, maybe I'd talk to his neighbors. That would be interesting. Is, is there anything, uh, are there any physical traces? Do we know where he's buried, for example? Uh, yeah, it's it's on uh, private property, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans have done a uh, – the headstone was broken, and they've tried to replace it, but they tell me that um, the property owner won't let them go replace the headstone. So I've not been able to go out there. I've, I've heard it's a no-fly zone if you want to go out there. Um, <laughs> That's another thing, uh, a side <laughs> note in your book of, of the times you pursued a, a – you know, a clue somewhere, and someone said, "Yeah, that landowner, you know, they've got a shotgun. I, I just wouldn't go out there." Yeah, uh, I kind of softened the language they used. It was a little saltier uh, the way it was. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, well, the language throughout this book is a a delight. It was fun to read uh, and to learn and to get a real personal connection to the Civil War. Listeners, you will enjoy reading uh, "Galvanized: The Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate." And it's also the odyssey of an enthusiastic Carolina historian uh, who put the book together and has been our guest tonight, Michael Brantley. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. This was, this was a lot of fun. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.